You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. I have to tell you, when I was a young kid, I really didn't like my birthday very much. That's because I was born on August 4th, which is smack dab right in the middle of summer. Unlike so many other kids who got to celebrate their birthdays during the school year, you know, with fellow students, I typically just had a small party with a few family members who were similar in age. And I love them all, and I don't hold them responsible for this at all, but I just felt like I was gypped, at least when I was a little kid. Luckily, I quickly outgrew that feeling. My mom, on the other hand, had a very different birthday problem. That's because she was born on December 26th, the day after Christmas. And that just passed and I realized it was her 80th birthday. She would have been 80 years old if she was still with us. Anyway, while we'd spend Christmas Day with family, her birthday always seemed more like an oversight. You know, typically she just got one gift for the two occasions from each person. Then there's the case of Annie Hyde. She was born in St. Johnsbury, Vermont on December 25th, 1876, which she considered to be the worst birthday of them all. Being born on Christmas Day meant that while every other kid she knew had both a Christmas celebration and a separate birthday party every year, she received just one. What a ripoff. In 1891, her father, who was Henry Clay Ide, he was appointed by U.S. President Benjamin Harrison to be the presidential commissioner to Samoa. Ide arrived to the islands on May 16, 1891, but he was forced to hand in his resignation less than six months later due to a serious family illness. Now, the press never said what that illness was, but most likely this was to care for Mrs. Ide, who passed away the following April. Henry Ide would certainly go on to far greater accomplishments. That included being appointed Samoan Chief Justice in 1893, Philippine Acting Governor General in 1905, and Minister to Spain in 1909, but it was that initial appointment in 1891 that would forever place his daughter Annie into the history books. Enter into the picture author Robert Louis Stevenson. World famous in his day for such works as Treasure Island and the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I mean, who hasn't heard of those? Stevenson moved to Samoa in 1890, hoping that its warm tropical air would help improve his health. 
When Henry Ide arrived the following year, the two struck up a close friendship, one that would last until the day Stevenson died. One day, this is while 14-year-old Annie is still back in Vermont attending public school, her dad casually mentioned to Stevenson how much she hated having been born on Christmas Day. Stevenson was always a lover of children and he felt great pity for her. So he put some thought into what it would be like for a child not to have a birthday celebration and he came up with the most unique solution. Dated June 19, 1891, 40-year-old Stevenson authored the following legal document. I, Robert Louis Stevenson, advocate of the Scots Bar, author of The Master of Ballantrae and Moral Emblems, stuck civil engineer, sole owner and patentee of the palace and plantation known as Valima in the island of Upolu, Samoa, a British subject, being in sound mind and pretty well I thank you in body. In consideration that Miss A. H. Ide, daughter of H. C. Ide in the town of St. Johnsbury in the county of Caledonia in the state of Vermont, United States of America, was born out of all reason upon Christmas Day and is therefore, out of all justice, denied the consolation and profit of a proper birthday. And considering that I, the said Robert Louis Stevenson, have attained an age when, oh, we never mention it, and that I have now no further use for a birthday of any description. And in consideration that I have met H.C. Ide, the father of the said A.H. Ide, and found him about as white a land commissioner as I require, have transferred and do hereby transfer to the said A.H. Ide all and whole of my rights and privileges in the 13th day of November, formerly my birthday, now, hereby and henceforth, the birthday of the said A.H. Ide, to have, hold, exercise, and enjoy the same in the customary manner, by the sporting of fine raiment, eating of rich meats and receipts of gifts, compliments and copies of verse, according to the manner of our ancestors. Yes, you heard that correctly. Robert Louis Stevenson gave Annie Ide his birthday. I'm really wondering, can someone really do that? It doesn't matter, because from that day forward, she would no longer be stuck with that dreaded Christmas birthday. The document continues. And I direct the said A.H. Ide to add to her said name of A.H. Ide the name Louisa, at least in private. And I charge her to use my said birthday with moderation and humanity, et tamquam bona filia familiae. The said birthday not being so young as it once was and having carried me in a very satisfactory manner since I can remember. And in case the said A.H.I.D. shall neglect or contravene either of the above conditions, I hereby revoke the donation and transfer my rights in the said birthday to the President of the United States of America for the time being. In witness whereof, I have hereto set my hand and seal of this 19th day of June in the year of grace 1891. The document was duly witnessed by Lloyd Osborne, that was his stepson, and Harold Watts. Then the document was signed, sealed, and delivered to Henry Ide. Upon receiving the deed handing over Stevenson's birthday, Annie Hilliard Ide officially became Annie Louisa Ide. She celebrated her first real birthday on November 13, 1891, in the way she had always dreamed. It was a party in which everyone brought gifts, played games, ate ice cream, and blew out the candle on the cake. And that's not a typo. Since it was her first birthday, the cake had just one candle upon it. Shortly afterward, Annie penned the following letter to Mrs. Stevenson, 
although I can't help but wonder if a ghostwriter may have assisted her. Dear Mr. Stevenson, you may be interested to know that the will, whereby you left your birthday to me, was published in several of the most widely circulated papers in the United States, and that I received letters from people in different parts of the country containing birthday greetings. On November 13th, I had my first real birthday celebration and dinner. With sporting a fine ramen, eating of rich meats and receipt of gifts, compliments and copies of verse, according to the manner of our ancestors, as the will most satisfactorily provides. The condition of the legacy have all been complied with. My old name was as unsatisfactory as my birthday, and I am now Annie Louisa, so that my new birthday cannot revert to the President of the United States, if I treat it kindly as I expect to do. In addition to expressing her appreciation for his generous gift, Annie has clearly expressed that she intends to meet all of the requirements of the deed. In this next section, it becomes clear that Annie is having just as much fun as Stevenson with the true meaning of what this all means. I'm wondering, however, what will you do without a birthday? As the years roll by, you can grow no older and perhaps will thus become immortal in body as well as in renown. When I have celebrated 70 or 80 November 13th, I shall be able to know you as a comparatively young man still drinking at the fountain of perpetual youth, delighting the world with the products of a mind undimmed by age. However wonderful a discovery that will be. But if I have two birthdays every year, I shall grow old at a terrible rate. The years will rush past me like an express train, and I shall soon be old enough to be my own grandmother, or perhaps I shall have a double development like Dr. Jekyll, one for each birthday, so that in one phrase I shall be twice as old as in the other. The possibilities are astonishing. Annie now brings the letter to a conclusion by mentioning gifts that she has enclosed and an expression of her gratitude for what he has done. You will see from the photograph which I sent that I am already much older than my sister, how much older I shall be in a few years. I have sent also a pen and ink sketch which I have made of the church which I attend, and which stands beside my home. I may remind you that your faithful old birthday is still comfortably housed, at least on Sundays. Papa wishes to be kindly remembered to yourself and family, whose acquaintance he enjoyed exceedingly. Thanking you once more for the gift which I greatly prize, I am, sincerely yours, Annie Louisa Ide. P.S. Will you be good enough to say to Mr. Strong that I was very much pleased with the Simone sketch? Mr. Strong refers to artist Joe Strong, who was married to Stevenson's stepdaughter, Belle, at the time. It was noted in the press that the author had sent Annie a watercolor painting that depicted two Samoan natives standing on a beach as they waved to an incoming male steamer. My guess is that's the sketch she's referring to here. It was incorrectly reported in a number of newspaper articles that Annie found Stevenson's birthday gift, and this really does give a new meaning to the term birthday gift. She found it hanging from the family Christmas tree that year. But that would be impossible because Stevenson penned the original document on June 19, 1891, and managed to reply to Annie's thank you note with this letter that's about to follow in November of 1891. There is no Christmas in between those two dates. My dear Louisa, your picture of the church, the photograph of yourself and your sister, and your very witty and pleasing letter came all in a bundle and made me feel I had my money's worth for that birthday. 
I am now, I must be, one of your nearest relatives. Exactly what we are to each other I do not know. I doubt if the case has ever happened before. Your papa ought to know, and I don't believe he does, but I think I ought to call you in the meanwhile, and until we get the advice of counsel learned in the law, my name daughter. Well, I was extremely pleased to see by the church that my name daughter could draw, by the letter that she was no fool, and by the photograph that she was a pretty girl, which hurts nothing. See how virtues are awarded? My first idea of adopting you was entirely charitable, and here I find that I am quite proud of it, and of you, and that I chose the kind of name daughter I wanted, for I can draw too, or rather I mean to say I could before I forgot how, and I am very far from being a fool myself, however much I may look it, and I am as beautiful as the day, or at least I once hoped that perhaps I might be going to be, and so I might, so that you see we are well met, and peers on these important points. I am very glad also that you are older than your sister, so should I have been if I had had one, so that the number of points and virtues which you have inherited from your name father is already quite surprising. I just love how Stevenson plays with the idea that they're quite well paired for being relatives because they share similar qualities, all of which he's either lost or wish he could have had. He continues by explaining how her new birthday really will work. I wish that you would tell your father not, that I like to encourage my rival that we had a wonderful time here of late, and that we are having a cold day on Milanunu, and the consuls are writing reports, and I am writing to the times, and if we don't get rid of our friends this time, I shall begin to despair of everything but my name daughter. You are quite wrong as to the effect of the birthday on your age. From the moment the deed was registered, as it was in the public press with every solemnity, the 13th of November became your own and only birthday, and you cease to have been born on Christmas Day. Ask your father. I am sure he will tell you this is sound law. You are thus become a month and twelve days younger than you were, but you will go on growing older for the future in the regular and human manner from one November 13th to the next. The effect on me is more doubtful. I may, as you suggest, live forever. I might, on the other hand, come to pieces like the one-horse shay at a moment's notice. Doubtless the step was risky, but I do not the least regret that which enables me to sign myself your reverend and delighted name father. As I mentioned earlier in the story, Annie's mom died in April of 1892. The following year, Henry I decided to move his two youngest children from Vermont to Samoa. Now, just as a side note, the Ides did have two additional children. There's Henry Jr., who died at age four in 1879, and then there was an older daughter named Adelaide. Now, she was already an adult at the time of this voyage, and she stayed behind only to succumb to typhoid fever at the age of 25 in 1898. Very sad. So back to the story where the Ides are on their way to Samoa. Keep in mind that even traveling on the most modern steamships of their day, crossing the ocean was a lengthy ordeal. So a stopover was made in Honolulu where Annie was able to meet her name father for the very first time. And the two hit it off immediately. They traveled to Samoa aboard the same steamship and they were able to celebrate her new birthday together that year. Stevenson arranged for more than a simple birthday party. I guess it'd be better to call it a feast. You see, at Stevenson's home Velima, native Samoans brought gifts of woven mats, fans, beads, and other stuff that they had made, and they danced, sang, and of course they had the obligatory scrumptious meal. 
The April 1904 issue of the Ladies Home Journal described the meal as follows, quote, The guest with Stevenson and his named daughter at the head of what would be called the table sat cross-legged on the ground Samoan fashion, and the feast was laid on banana leaves, the native substitute for tablecloth. Every edible luxury the islands afforded them, mangoes, guavas, taro, coconuts, bananas, wild pigeons, shrimps, fish, all prepared with the skill for which every native chef is famous. I have to say, I'm not sure about wild pigeons, but that sounds great. How do I get invited? The celebration would be repeated the next year, but it would be the last. A few months later, Stevenson would be gone, and what is a fairly well-known story, on December 3, 1894, he was struggling to open a bottle of wine when he suddenly blurted out, What's that? which was followed by asking his wife Fanny, quote, Does my face look strange? He then collapsed and died a few hours later from what is generally believed to have been a cerebral hemorrhage. This is the most shocking part. Robert Louis Stevenson was just 44 years of age. As Annie got older, she traveled the world and continued to celebrate her new birthday. Whether in New York, San Francisco, the Philippines, Samoa, India, Australia, or wherever, she always honored Stevenson by continuing the tradition. Now, whether the celebration was a large, over-the-top event or a small, intimate gathering, there was always a big meal, gifts, and of course, a reading of Stevenson's original deed. The next notable event in Annie's life would occur while attending a ball in Manila in 1905. This is a period during which her father was the acting governor general of the Philippines. It was there that she met Congressman William Burke Cochran, or just Burke Cochran as he liked to be called, and he was traveling to the Orient with a number of other politicians and notable people. At that point, Annie and her younger sister Marjorie joined up with the expedition, and they toured throughout both Japan and China. It was clear from the very beginning that Mr. Cochran was smitten with Annie, but he did have a couple of strikes against him. First, Burke was 22 years her senior. That's a big difference. And second, he'd been married twice prior. His first wife, Mary, died during childbirth when Burke was just 22 years of age. He then remarried 12 years later, only to lose his second wife, Rhonda, after 10 years of marriage. Yet nothing seemed to stand in the way of this blooming love affair. Upon returning to the United States, Annie took up residence in Santa Barbara, California, and Mr. Cochran returned to Washington, D.C. As soon as Congress adjourned for a holiday recess, he raced across the country to see Annie once again. The couple then traveled with Sister Marjorie and a few others through Southern California and then into Arizona, and it was while visiting the Grand Canyon that it became clear to everyone that this couple intended to be together forever. Their engagement was officially announced from the Executive Mansion in Manila on July 13, 1906. The wedding, which was held at the St. Regis Hotel in New York City the following November 15th, was a relatively small affair with just 25 guests in attendance. For the next 17 years, the couple appeared to live a wonderful life. 
they traveled the world, hobnobbed with the rich and famous, and spent a significant amount of time at Burke's 300-acre Long Island estate that was known as the Cedars. Unfortunately, today, it's a housing development. Anyway, all good things come to an end, and sadly, Burke Cochran died on March 1st, 1923, at 69 years of age. His entire estate, which is valued at $600,000, which is about $8.5 million today, his entire estate was left to his wife. Annie would never remarry, but every year like clockwork, the press would report on how she spent Robert Louis Stevenson's birthday. 1932 was the only year that she didn't celebrate his birthday on November 13th, and that's because a close friend had died and her hostess was in mourning. It just didn't seem appropriate. Instead, she celebrated the birthday after returning to her home on Long Island. Annie Louisa Ide Cochran passed away at New York Hospital on January 7, 1945, after having been ill for several weeks. She was 68 years of age. Now, since the couple never had children, the bulk of her estate was left to her sister Marjorie. Yet, she was incredibly generous to others. Various friends, relatives, employees, and organizations received somewhere between $1,000 and $25,000 each. And always the animal lover, in fact, Annie had set up the first ASPCA in Manila, she left $1,000 for the care of her dog Promise, along with $100 per month for life, that's about $1,350 per month today, she left $100 per month for life to her employee Jesse T. Walker, who had agreed to adopt the pooch. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So the big question is what happened to the celebration of Stevenson's birthday after Annie died? Well, there's one person who knows best, and I had the pleasure of interviewing her on Wednesday. So let's take a listen. My name is Heather Finn, and Annie Ide was my great-grandmother's sister. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, I do appreciate you doing this. Thank you very much. The first question I ask is, uh, uh, do you know really much about Annie Ide herself? Um, well, I suppose we, we, she, she is quite a figure in our family. So she was my great-grandmother's sister, and uh, she never she, she married a very wealthy man. Uh, Henry. Uh, uh, so there were Henry. I had two daughters, Marjorie and Anne, and Marjorie was my grandmother. And um, Anne married Bert Cochran, who was actually born an, an Irishman who was born in Sligo. Very, very clever. His mother died, and I think he was he was so clever. Um, the Jesuit priest sent him to Paris, 
and he did extremely well, moved to New York, became a lawyer. Um, and he actually was had a, such a, a brilliant style of oratory. He spoke so well. He inspired and taught Winston Churchill to give his great speeches. Yes, and I understand he's a distant relative of yours. Is that correct? Uh, Winston Churchill was my grandmother's first cousin. So we have quite a lot of American relations. So, um, so Marjorie, my grandmother's mother was American but also her grandmother was American so um and her grandmother's sister was Winston Churchill's uh mother so my granny and Winston Churchill were first cousins so yeah so there's that connection there and that would be the connection between Bert Cochran and Winston Churchill as well so that that's how they would have known each other and um he he taught him how to speak and how to give speeches so that's Pretty amazing. They read that he credits uh, Bork Cochran with, you know, teaching him how to be a great orator and a great politician, which uh, I thought was was quite interesting. Oh, well, brilliant! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, so Bert Cochran and Anne never had children, and I think Anne doted on my grandmother, who was her only sort of niece, and um, I think that's how she she left. I mean, I know she she actually sort of left quite an inheritance to my grandmother as well. So she was she was very important to her. But what I didn't realise, I found out from my mum, is she didn't, Anne didn't die till 1945. So my grandmother didn't get this birthday as a child. She she was, she'd been through sort of, she was in World War Two, So she was a, a, an adult to sort of, when, when this came to her. So it's kind of unusual. Yeah, actually, uh, it was announced in the papers a number of years before Annie died that she was leaving the birthday to your grandmother. Oh, I didn't actually know that. Okay. Yeah, so she, she must have known. I don't know how old she was at the time. I want to say she was a teenager. and But at that point, she knew that she was going to inherit this birthday. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, when Annie died, died uh, you know, she got it. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. What can you tell me about your grandmother? I mean, since she inherited Robert Louis Stevenson's birthday. She was born in Ireland, but she wanted to join. Uh, she wanted to join the war, really, the war effort. But in, in Britain, they didn't allow women to join. So she went to France and they allowed her to join, to enlist there. And she, she became an ambulance driver in the French army. And she went in under heavy fire and um rescued people on both sides I think. I think she was one of the first women into a concentration camp after um, the Allies were freeing people um, and she's written lots and lots of books. She wrote, wrote she was a great writer so if people are interested they can look up her Wikipedia page and they can see her books and her story. Um, so she, she had a really really interesting life very interesting life how many children did she have? Did you know? Two. So she had my uncle and my mother. When your grandmother passed on, what happened to Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, birthday? Well, my grand I was very close to my grandmother. I sort of lived on and off with her, really, because we lived almost next door as a child. And um, But she died when I was six. And um, I mean, it wasn't it was a verbal. She had told her solicitor or her lawyer, that, who was a very close friend, that she wanted me to have it, because we were very close. So, I mean, that's that's how I kind of it came to me. And really, it's really just a bit of fun, you know, more than anything serious. You know, it was just... To, <laughs> just to make it clear, you inherited Robert Louis Stevenson's birthday. Yes, I inherited Robert Louis Stevenson's birthday. <laughs> 
I guess I should ask, how are you keeping the tradition alive? Because uh, Stevenson did require that you celebrate every year uh, the birthday. Every year, yeah, no, every year we have a bottle of champagne and of late my husband cooks me a really nice dinner. And I remember he printed out all the documents, you know, and for fun. But yeah, we just we have we have some champagne and we have a nice meal, really. Nothing, nothing more than that. But we always mark it. It's it's definitely, you know, as much nearly as my own birthday. It's, you kind of feel you have to you have to do it. Keep the tradition going. You know, Stevenson did this in kind of a whimsical approach. Yeah. And it, it's nice that it's being kept alive. <laughs> I mean, I assume you have children. I have one daughter, one daughter. One daughter. So I, I'm guessing she's going to inherit this uh, after. Yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, we, we have to keep it going, you know. It's just it's such a special little thing. And, and, yeah, I think she would definitely. And how old is she now? She is two. Oh, so she has no <laughs> no clue what this means. No, no idea Yes, Yeah, yeah. But, but I assume you're going to educate her uh, fairly early on as to who Robert Louis Stevenson was absolutely we'll read her all the books and tell her all the stories and yeah yeah so uh i have a, a few other questions for you do you have any idea what happened to that original document that uh, robert louis stevenson had written i think that he, an american university has it uh, the document in their library that's what uh, that's what my mum was told when she was in edinburgh for the hundred year anniversary okay but i don't she didn't remember what university but i'm sure we could find out and I'm sure somebody will come back to you, but that's where I think it's in America in a university library. Do you recall how you learned about uh, the fact that you inherited Stevenson's birthday? I don't really remember. It was sort of always there in the background. But I suppose when I turned 18, we started having a glass of champagne on it. So that's when I really remember sort of getting to enjoy it, you know. So. And of course, if you, if you don't celebrate, what happens to it? It goes to the president of the United States, so may not want to let him know about that. So <laughs> I know, yeah, I'm definitely not going to keep celebrating it. Don't worry. <laughs> That's good. If you actually look at Annie's uh, gravestone, uh, she did adopt the middle name Louisa. It's actually engraved into the uh, tombstone, but she kept her own birthday. She she wasn't buried with his birthday. Oh yeah, she was having the two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, at least you're lucky. You get to celebrate two birthdays a year. I get two exactly. I'm spoiled. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, has uh, um, has anyone in your family ever been jealous of you uh, getting this or no? I don't think so. I think my mom always sort of likes to celebrate it like it's hers as well. So we always kind of mm. we always end up. She always has, even if we're not together. She always uh, opens a bottle of champagne as well and marks it. So yeah, that's good. Um, yeah. Cause, you know, obviously she could have inherited it also. I know she she doesn't know why she didn't, but yeah. <laughs> I, I was wondering if maybe she had a hand in the decision of handing it down to you, but I guess. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Was there anything else you wanted to add? No, no, I think you I think you asked all the questions. I mean, I hope I answered everything, and that's kind of that's it really, because it's it's an unusual thing to be asked about because you know if you told people they would they just think you're mad, you know. <laughs> How can you have Robert Louis Stevenson's birthday? They don't. It doesn't make sense to people. That was all the two of us discussed regarding Stevenson's birthday, but the conversation did continue. So if you hang around until the end of the podcast, you can hear more of my interview with Heather Finn. That includes what she currently does for a living, and probably more interestingly, what it's like to live in a real-life castle. I should add that Heather's grandmother was author Anita Leslie King. It wasn't mentioned during the interview. 
She was 19 years old when Annie willed Stevenson's birthday to her in December of 1933. It seems appropriate to bring the story to a close with an unpublished poem that Robert Louis Stevenson penned. In for a penny, in for a pound, in for a name and all around, which will you take and how will you choose, by color or weight or the glass shoes? Once and for all I've chosen, chosen, once and for all and whatever betide, Annie Louisa, Annie Louisa, Annie Louisa eyed. I have chosen at a venture nothing I knew, chose like a fool and that's true, chose like an ass and chose like a ninny, an unrealized piccaninny. Once and for all I've chosen, chosen, once and for all and think with pride of Annie Louisa, Annie Louisa, Annie Louisa eyed. Useless, useful, like that for you to decide. At Christmas time, all of us love to do something special for our favorite little folks, for nieces or nephews, the children of our friends, and the youngsters who live next door. One of the surest ways to make a hit with the boys and girls you know is to send each of them a Hallmark Magic Money Tree or a Hallmark Money Train. These are the Hallmark cards specially designed to hold ten shiny new dimes. Not only are they fun to receive, but the children will be pleased as punch to have money of their own to buy anything their hearts desire. You'll find Hallmark Magic Money Trees or Trains are the perfect answer to that old question, what shall I send Susie this year? Or Mike or Jimmy or Jane, and they cost just 25 cents each. Also at the fine store where you buy them, you'll find Hallmark Money Enclosures for grown-ups, too, in many attractive styles. So why not choose yours tomorrow? Remember that Hallmark is right on the back, the famous Hallmark that says you care enough to send the very best. That commercial's from the December 13th, 1953 broadcast of the Hallmark Hall of Fame radio show. This particular episode was about Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite. It was hosted by Lionel Barrymore, and this show included a remote broadcast from the Nobel Prize ceremony that was being held for General George Marshall in Oslo, Norway. Few people know this, but here in the United States, originally only the U.S. Postal Service could print postcards. With the passage of the Private Mailing Card Act on May 19, 1898, finally anyone could print postcards, and the demand for them went through the roof. While working in his family's Norfolk, Nebraska store in 1906, a young man named Joyce C. Hall became intrigued by the wares being sold by a salesman who had stopped in the store. In particular, he was most interested in postcards and decided that retail was not the place to be. Hall was certain that the future lie in the wholesaling of postcards. So in 1910, at the age of 18, Hall packed up two shoeboxes full of postcards and he headed off to Kansas City, Missouri to start his business. Soon his brother Raleigh joined him and they named the company Hall Brothers. At first, their future didn't seem very bright because not only were the sales of postcards plummeting, but a fire destroyed their offices and all of their inventory. Yet, the company would rise again from the ashes. The two decided to take a gamble on greeting cards. Their feeling was that since they were mailed in envelopes, they offered a more private way to communicate than postcards did. Well, clearly it worked out very well for them. In 1928, the company started printing the name Hallmark on the back of each card. This is not just because it incorporated the family name, 
but they felt that it implied that it was a quality product. In 1944, one of their sales and marketing executives jotted down on an index card what he thought a Hallmark card stood for. He felt it was caring, quality, and about being the very best. So the words that he wrote down were the familiar, when you care enough to send the very best. And that's an advertising slogan that they still use to this day. The company officially changed its name to Hallmark in 1954. And today, Hallmark, along with American Greetings, is estimated to control 90% of the U.S. greeting card market. Of course, one can't help but wonder what the effect of electronic greeting cards is having on their business. So here's a question for you. When was the first commercially produced Christmas card sold? This is a fairly difficult question, so I'll give you some choices to help narrow down your answer. Was it 1, 1751, 2, 1785, 3, 1825, 4, 1843, or 5, 1873? Well, stick around until the end of the podcast, and I'll let you know the answer to this question. In other news, here are a few Christmas stories from years past. And of course, I'm posting these a couple of days after Christmas, so let's just say I'm a little bit early for next Christmas. For Christmas in 1958, Racine, Wisconsin resident Warren David jokingly told his wife what he dreamed of getting for Christmas. So she went out of her way to make sure that his wish came true. Mrs. David arranged to have a large package topped with a giant ribbon delivered to their home on Christmas Eve. And when Mr. David opened the present, out popped the cute blonde doll that he requested. But this wasn't any doll. This was a living doll. And it really was 17-year-old Judy Dexter who worked as a secretary at a local department store. It turns out that his wife, Judy, and the store's owner conspired to pull off this incredible practical joke. When it was all over, Mrs. David insisted that her husband exchange the gift for a different item. In our next story, it was reported that shortly after Christmas in 1960, Eight-year-old London resident Alan Smith decided to emulate Santa by going down the chimney of a nearby house that was being demolished. You know exactly what's going to happen. He got down about halfway and he got stuck. After being rescued by the fire department, Alan stated, quote, I can't understand it. Santa's much fatter than me and he never gets stuck. My guess is that his parents had a long talk with him afterward explaining how Santa really gets down those chimneys. Moving on. It seems like an annual event every Christmas here in the United States. The Consumer Product Safety Commission issues warnings about unsafe toys. So in 1974, the commission once again embarked upon a campaign with the important message to, quote, think toy safety. Bumper stickers were printed up, Ads were prepared for newspapers, radio, and television, and pamphlets were distributed to bring attention to potentially dangerous toys. They missed one big one, however. They had 80,000 buttons made that said, quote, For kids' sake, think toy safety. Well, they should have taken their own advice. Safety tests showed that the paint used to manufacture the buttons had excessive amounts of lead, they had sharp edges, and small parts that a child could easily swallow. 
they were forced to recall all of the dangerous pins. Luckily, none had been distributed to the public yet. They were all still sitting in regional commission offices and easily collected. A spokesman said that the commission would have to pick up the $1,700 cost, which is about $8,400 today, since they never specified in their contract with the manufacturer that the buttons had to be safe. Who would think? So early in the podcast, I asked you when the first commercially produced Christmas card was made. It probably goes without saying that people had designed their own individual greeting cards long before, but they weren't being mass-produced. The first commercially sold Christmas card was commissioned by Sir Henry Cole and illustrated by John Calcott Horsley in London on May 1st, 1843. Imagine a piece of cardstock about the size of a 3x5 index card that's divided into three sections. On either side are scenes of charity. On the left, food is being given to an elderly person and a child. On the right, a woman is providing a mother and her infant child with a blanket for warmth. Your eye, however, is immediately drawn to the central full-color scene of a family, children included, drinking wine and making a toast to you, the recipient. Beneath the family, in capital letters, the card states, A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. The most interesting part of the story is that Sir Henry Cole was also involved in the design of the first postage stamp for the Royal Post, which featured a profile of Queen Victoria. This stamp, which was known as the Penny Black, made the mailing of letters finally affordable and simple. But suddenly, Cole was deluged with letters from just about everyone and anybody that he knew, and he realized there was absolutely no way he could answer all of them personally. His solution was actually quite ingenious. He created a pre-printed card for which all one needed to do was fill in the to and from blank spaces, you know, at the top and bottom of the card, simply place an address on the back, a stamp, and put it in the mail. In total, 2,050 Christmas cards were printed that first year. Each cost one shilling. Here in the United States, the first Christmas cards were printed by lithographer Richard Pease. He did that so he could sell them in his store, which had this crazy name, the Temple of Fancy. It was really more of a five-and-dime store than an upscale retailer, and for those old enough to remember, it was basically the Woolworths of its day. Now, the building does still stand. It's at 518 Broadway in Albany, New York, which is about 20 minutes from my home, but it's since been turned into modern apartments known as the Lofts at 111 Pine. That's a street that runs perpendicular. Pease's cards are thought to have been sold between 1849 and 1850, and they were more of a festive business card and you know, promotional item than what we think of as being a Christmas card today. The black and white sketch includes an image of the store itself, the products they sold, a man, which I assume is Pease himself, who's overlooking a woman and her family. Near the top is a sketch of Santa Claus, and most importantly, arching across the top in big letters are the words, not Merry Christmas, but Pease's Great Variety Store in the Temple of Fancy. Now beneath the family is a, is a greeting that says, A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, 
with blank fields to enter to and from. You know, put the names in there. Only one of Pisa's cards remains in existence, and it's in the special collections at Manchester Metropolitan University. As we're nearing the end of the podcast, let me play for you the remainder of my interview with Heather Finn. So why don't you talk a little about what you do today? Well, I am a knitwear designer. Um, I went to art college and I studied fashion and then I specialized in, in knitwear. So I work on a sort of a domestic knitting machine that's a bit, it's a bit nearly like you're hand looming. It's a little bit like a loom app, but it's much faster than hand knitting. And I work in cashmere lamb's wool and lots of bright colors and I wow. make lovely knitwear. <laughs> There's a, a woman who lives up the road from me who uh, who knits uh, sweaters. She actually has the uh, sheep out on her lawn. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, they, they're actually dropped off in the summer, and they, they live on the farm, and then uh, the owner of the sheep takes them back. and then you That's know, incredible. And, and she uses it, but it's incredible how long it takes her to make a piece. It's it, I mean, beautiful. In fact, I saw what you did. It's really beautiful stuff. Oh, well, my work would be, mine's a lot faster. I would work a lot faster. Unfortunately, I don't have the sheep because <laughs> Irish wool is really itchy. So I use nice Italian and Scottish cashmere lambs. Well, um, the Irish wool is just too itchy for, yeah. for people. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So I have to keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and what is uh, the website of your uh, business? It is www.heatherfin.com. That's fairly simple to remember. Is there anything you wanted to mention? I guess I should ask. Yeah, if just if people were interested, they could have a look at um, www.ornmorecastle.com. And that's my parents live in Ornmore Castle, which is uh, a castle in the west of Ireland that my grandmother um, bought after the war and she restored it. So there's lots of information on the family there that people might find interesting. That's interesting. I, I have to say, I don't know anybody who lives in a castle. Not that there are many in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's an 800-year-old um, wow. Norman castle by the sea off Galway Bay. It's, it's totally restored. totally restored, and my grandmother bought it, yeah, just after the war. Is living in a castle, uh, is it really dark and dreary, or is it really bright? I mean, because I assume it's been modernized since it's been re, you know, refurbished. It's co- it's pretty cold and damp. We we have a, a modern uh, building that's joined onto it, so which is much much warmer and more comfortable. So we really just kind of have parties oh, in the castle. Interesting. I mean, I appreciate yeah. modern uh, conveniences. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. You could. It's 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 pretty cold. Yeah, but the walls are just so thick. It's, it'd be impossible to keep it right. warm. Um, I, I live in a house. It's a about 100 years old, and I can tell you it's pretty hard to Keep even that modernize too. that. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I should have just built a new house. It would have been a lot easier. I know. We, we often think that ourselves. Anyway, yeah. it is a fun story, and uh, I, I do yeah. thank you for being on the podcast. I really oh, my pleasure. Um, thank you for interviewing me. It's my pleasure. Well, thanks again, and I hope you have a great <laughs> new year. Lovely. You too. Thanks so much, Steve. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I do want to thank Heather Finn for being so incredibly gracious for taking the time out of her day so I could interview her for this podcast. I thought that she was great. If you get a chance, head on over to heatherfinn.com and check out her knitwares. I am not exaggerating when I say she's done some incredibly nice work, and it's definitely well worth a look. Also, be sure to visit OrnmoreCastle.com to see the restored castle that her parents own. 
I followed their link to Airbnb and I was surprised to see how affordable it was to stay in a real-life castle. I also want to thank my colleague Jeff Artis for reading the part of Robert Louis Stevenson and one of my current students, that's Lily Watasek, for reading the letter from Annie Hyde. Now, I'm not sure if they're running yet, but you may have noticed some advertising attached to this episode. That's because I was recently asked to become part of the Recorded History Podcast Network, which is just starting up. While I have been asked to place ads into the podcast before, I never saw any real benefit to doing so. I've always kind of done this as a hobby, and I know people have spent more money on alcohol and cigarettes than I do to create this podcast, so really paying for it has never been much of an issue. So after considerable thought, my rationale for joining the podcast network was for one reason only, and that was to increase my audience. Because honestly, it's basically plateaued over the past couple of years. As most of you know, I've always been awful at self-promotion, so hopefully this will bring in some new listeners. And honestly, if nothing materializes from the decision, I retain full ownership of the podcast and always, you know, move it right back to where it was before. Anyway, thanks for listening. I hope you have a great new year. Bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.